Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had uh, here today. And let me invite you as we continue, if you would turn with me to Second uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, that is where we find ourselves as we study God's Word together here this morning. And I wonder, as, we, as you came here, and maybe as you prepared to uh, come to church here this morning, uh, I wonder what uh, expectations you had in your life, uh, expecting w- what you expected to find here today, uh, maybe what you expected to experience here today. Maybe God in His goodness and in His grace has surprised you even here today already, and may He continue to do so. But I wonder as we think about gathering together as we study God's Word or gathering together as we sing His praises or gathering together as we lay our uh, concerns before Him in prayer and all those things, I wonder if there's an expectation not only of the glory of the gospel but also an expectation that we will enjoy the glory of the gospel. That as we got up this morning and weighed our, you know, you weighed your way through Sunday morning and you're trying to get your coffee ingested, you try to get your breakfast, maybe you try to get everybody in your house situated and ready to go. What expectation you have in your heart and life as you approach Christ here this morning? And I wonder even, as we think about our relationship with Christ and the wonder of knowing Christ in the gospel, do we have an expectation of the greater glory of the gospel and the sense in which we ought to enjoy the permanence of the gospel itself. Grab your copy of God's Word and see with me where we find this in God's Word in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, and we will read down through verse 11 as we uh, study here this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, says this, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this moment now, increase our expectations. Lord, as we study your word, as your spirit is at work through your word, Lord, as you speak the truth into our hearts and lives, Father, increase our expectations of the great glory of the gospel. And Father, stir in our hearts a depth of enjoyment that perhaps we've never known before. Lord, that lives would be transformed for the first time today. And Father, that lives would be refreshed in the gospel again today. In all things and in every way, may you be magnified and glorified as we study your word together now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. By the time we get to this point in 2 Corinthians, there has been a lot that has already been talked about. And you can think it really in terms of what we've learned about who God is. We can talk about the God of all comfort and the God who raises the dead and the God who gives grace and the God who is ever increasingly and wonderfully displayed as faithful, the God who unites and the God who is triumphant and as we saw last week, the God who is sufficient. And so as we think of all of who He is, even from what we've already learned in 2 Corinthians, there should be a sense of 
amazement at His glory and an expectation of that being at work in our lives. And as he starts to unpack this, really in similar ways that we saw last week and that we will see again next week in, comparison, in, in comparing the old covenant with the new covenant, he says this in verse 7. He says, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. And of course, he's making reference to the Old Testament law and thinking in terms of the law itself, that the law as God has given it and the law rightly used does condemn us justly in our sin. The law exposes us. You can go read Romans chapter 7 and you can see how the Apostle Paul talks about him not knowing sin without the law and really the weight of the sin without the law. That our sin nature is revealed and our sinful action is exposed. And then if God were only just, if that was his only attribute, we would all go to hell justly. The law is described here as the ministry of death. No one can satisfy its demands except for God. The law shows us our sin and it shows us the one against whom we have sinned. The sovereign Lord over all things. That our sin is not just missing the mark in the sense of, oh, we just messed up a little. No, we have transgressed. We have disobeyed. We have run in direct contradiction into the authority of the Almighty God Himself. And that this is etched, as He says, carved in letters and stone. Which is another way of saying there's no changing it. This is the reality in which we find ourselves with the law. You see, we need this reminder here because it prepares our hearts for the remedy. in, In showing us the diagnosis, it points us to the cure, the proper use and function of the law, as we know not only from here and from Romans, but also even from Galatians, that it is, as it's described in Galatians, our guardian, our tutor, to point us to Christ himself. I was reminded in thinking about this and, you know, in connection with Reformation Day, and we talked about that on Wednesday night, I was reminded of a Martin Luther quote as he talks about the right use of the law and the law functioning as our guardian. And he said this, as long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, thief, he would swear that he is righteous. How is God going to humble such a person except by law? The law is the hammer of death the thunder of hell, and the thunder of God's wrath to bring down the proud and shameless hypocrites. When the law was instituted on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by lightning, by storms, by the sound of trumpets to tear to pieces that monster called self-righteousness. As long as a person thinks he is right, he is going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He is going to hate God, despise His grace and mercy, And ignore the promises of Christ. The gospel of the free forgiveness of sins through Christ will never, never appeal to the self-righteous. This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast needs a big axe. And that is what the law is. A big axe. Accordingly, the proper use and function of the law is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. The ministry of death carved on letters of stone, and it came 
with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. I mean, you think in the span of salvation history, this was a huge moment in the giving of the law. And you think of the distinctives of God's holiness, that he had redeemed his people from slavery and then given them the law. He breaks the hard-heartedness and prepares our hearts for the gospel. But even as you think about the giving of the law itself, and you think of the mountain and Mount Sinai ablaze with the glory of God, and all the thunder and all the smoke and all the trumpet, and the people being told that you can't even approach it. And as a result, as Moses goes up there and he talks face-to-face with God, that his, his face is reflecting the glory of God. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 34. Moses is reflecting the the glory of God to the people to a degree that it's too amazing, and he had to be veiled. It came with such glory that God would instruct us, that God would display this, that God would care enough to speak this truth into our lives. That His holiness would stir our humility. His greatness would stir our repentance. And yet it was being brought to an end. Isn't it wonderful to know that yes, the law was given and a clear standard was laid out. But that's not the end of the story. That it's not just here's the law, that's final. It's here's the law. It's preparing your hearts for something that's coming that's far greater and that is permanent. That embedded in our inability to keep the law, God is going to display His glory. And so that even as we think about the law itself and understanding our own sin, preparing our heart with great expectations for the greater glory of the gospel, we are meant to expect this. But do we? We should. He says, if the ministry of death came with such glory... That the Israelites couldn't even gaze at Moses' face. Look at verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The Spirit of God advancing the kingdom of Christ Jesus the Son to the glory of God the Father. The life-giving work of the Spirit. Now how is the Holy Spirit at work? Well, the Holy Spirit comes to convict us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. And so there's clarity of the understanding of sin, clarity of our need for Christ, but that the life-giving work of the Spirit doesn't just stop with conviction, but brings us to conversion, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive in Christ Jesus. He raises us to new life by His mercy and by His grace. He has brought us from death to life. And even still, that's not the end of it. He, he gives life to those who are alive and teaches us how to live lives of holiness empowered by His gracious work, where we desire to be ever increasingly more like Christ, where He gives us spiritual gifts so that we can serve in the lives of one another, and that we want to be holy because God is holy, and that we ought to expect evidence of life. Just like when, if somebody goes to the hospital and makes it back out of the hospital and you go to see them at their house, when you go to see them at their house, there's an expectation that there's going to be some sign of life, right? 
There's an expectation there that, that, that you who were brought to healing are giving evidence of life. How much more so we who were dead in our sins and now are alive in Christ. There should be an expectation of the evidence of life. You think of the resurrecting power of Jesus in his own ministry in the life of Lazarus. He didn't just say, Lazarus, come forth, and everybody was like, well, he, you know, he meant it, and so we don't really need any evidence. No, he came toddling out of the tomb. Even the resurrection of Jesus himself. He didn't just say it happened. He showed up and he said, look, I'm alive. Touch and see. He, there's evidence of life. What about in our own lives? Evidence of his life as we feast on his word, as we delight in knowing him and walking and delight in his love. And that not only does he teach us and grow us in life now, but we have life to look forward to. We have living hope in heaven that one day we will be clothed in immortality. And the Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? To not merely diagnose the problem, but to apply the cure. See, even the question itself is meant to promote our own expectation that we would expect greater glory from the gospel. Now, consider the difference, right? I mean, you can just use the biblical illustrations here. Consider the difference between Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and his face is glowing because it's reflecting the glory of God, right? You think of the transfiguration of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17 or Luke chapter 9 or Mark chapter 9, what's going on there? Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God. He's radiating the glory of God. It's like the difference between the sun and the moon, between the source and that which reflects it. What has more glory than a mountain ablaze with the glory of God? A life ablaze with the glory of God. Saved by grace through faith, where we were pardoned by God's adopting love and secure in His infinite mercy. More glory than the veiled face of Moses is the unveiled glory of Jesus. As Paul will go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, right across the margin. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ought to expect magnificent displays of God's glory in the gospel. As lives are transformed, as families are formed around the worldview of knowing Christ as Savior, this increased expectation as we pray for the, the prodigal loved ones and long for his reconciling power to be on display, as we long and look to see and fully expect broken lives to be mended and wayward hearts to be gathered and afflicted lives to be comforted, hard hearts to be softened, and heavy hearts to be set free, the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, the ministry of the Spirit, we ought to expect greater glory. Looking forward to that day when one day we'll be standing in heaven, not clothed with the filthy rags of our own sinful lives, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our Savior. 
glory indeed. He says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Do you see the shift there in the language? Glory in the ministry of condemnation, which is the ministry of death, and the ministry of righteousness, which is the ministry of the Spirit. He says there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. We don't need to deny that. We don't need to look at the Old Testament or look at the law and say, oh, well, we don't really need that anymore. No, we do. We need to see God's glory at work in it and yet see how it prepares our hearts for the ministry of righteousness that must far exceed it in glory. And that this righteousness is not self-righteousness. This is not us doing things or trying to keep the law in our own power and in our own way to try to make us feel better than somebody else. This is not presuming that we are better than anybody else. That's often how it's used, isn't it? You start talking about sin and you start, start talking about need for Christ and everything else. You start, start talking about the law. And it's like, well, well, at least I'm not like so and so over there. But interestingly enough, if you, maybe if you went to court for a traffic ticket and you were in there and the judge was, you know, it was very obvious. You got clocked. Here it is. The evidence is all there. You broke the law. How would it go for you if you stood up before the judge and said, well, at least I'm not like that guy back there? Is that a defense? Not in the slightest. It's probably going to make it a whole lot worse for you. Why should we expect that that would work with God himself? Admit your own need. This isn't about comparative righteousness because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need Jesus. We need His righteousness. We need Him as our righteousness. The perfection of God. As it's described later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, speaking of Jesus, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God. The ministry of righteousness as a gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are accounted as righteous in the sight of God. Tested righteousness. That the Son of God took on flesh and was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin who died on the cross for our sin, endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God, and for all who repent and believe, He clothes us in His righteousness. And that righteousness imputed leads to righteousness lived. But so oftentimes we get those things backwards, don't we? We twist things around. He says it must far exceed it in glory. It's like comparing lights. And maybe you've had that moment, maybe you like to camp or something. You go outside and, you know, you're playing, maybe you're camping in the yard, maybe you're camping in the mountains, whatever the case may be. And you're outside and the sun is set and you're playing with the kids and you're playing with the grandkids. You get, what do you get out? The flashlight, right? Turn the thing on, you're shining it in everybody's face and, you know, every time you do so, everybody's squinting and all that. 
That light seems very, very bright because it's so dark outside. You have a whole lot of fun shining that light all here, there, and everywhere. Then you finally make it to sleep. You wake up and the sun has risen. And you know good and well the batteries in that flashlight are good, but as soon as the sun has come up, you turn that thing on, you're like, is it even on? Pointing it at everybody's face and it doesn't make even a difference. Because by comparison, it says nothing. The greater glory of the sun, the greater light is shining, makes the flashlight seem as nothing. Listen, light has dawned in his name is Jesus. We ought to expect much. His light that lifts us out of the horror of our own sin and shame, that pierces the darkness and enlightens our lives, that gives hope and peace and rest and joy, that the law diagnosed the problem. But the Son of God brought healing to the soul. The law showed us our sin, and the Son saved us from our sin, and the Spirit applied it in our lives. The law shows us our need for righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and the Spirit is at work in our hearts to work that out in us. Is there any comparison? Do we see and expect the greater glory of the gospel? Out of His grace. There are so many people laboring under the delusion of their own works-based righteousness. Even in the few months that we've been involved in Gather and Go, time and time again, people say, well, I'll, 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 I'll take my chances on my own works. What does it take for a person to go to heaven, in your opinion? Just do some good things. Just be nice. Just maybe have some more nice things than some not nice things. So, well, what about your sin? What about the fact that you violated his law? What about the expectation that when you break a law, there's an expectation of punishment? What about all of that? Do you not see the greater glory of the gospel that we're not saved because we've earned it, because we couldn't? We're saved because our God is gracious, because our God in love sent his only son to die on the cross for our sin and rise from the dead that all who believe in him have everlasting life. Don't you see how much greater that is? The ministry of righteousness, of righteousness imputed through faith in Jesus Christ as a free gift of God's grace. Oh, that far exceeds this ministry of condemnation. We ought to expect greater glory out of the gospel, but that's not all. Enjoy the fact that it's not a temporary solution, but it is a permanent reality. He says in verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The fleeting glory of the law. Now, we know all about fleeting glory. That's why we're telling all those stories from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You see somebody throwing a football and you're like, I remember when. See somebody hit a golf ball and you're like, I remember when. And you start to tell this story. And as you tell the story and you get to the conclusion and maybe the, little, the young kids in front of you, you know, you're talking about basketball. You're like, I remember when I could hit that shot every time. I'm like, yeah, but you can't even hardly get your feet off the ground now. 
We recognize in an instant that it was fleeting. It was temporary. It passed almost as soon as we experienced it. In the same way, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The law is glorious to the extent that it points people to their need for Christ, but the glory is not in a system. The glory is aimed at knowing God and that we live now in the new covenant and we ought to be amazed at what God did in the Old Testament, but it ought to stir our greater enjoyment of what He's done in the new covenant of hope and life and forgiveness in Christ and all of what He has fulfilled just as we've already seen even in 2 Corinthians. That's why not only can we unpack as we think about Jesus being, you know, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, and they all find their yes and amen in Christ, and we can unpack the wonder of that, but even as you're just reading the Bible, maybe you're reading through the Bible and you finally get to Leviticus, and you start reading Leviticus, and you're like, what is this? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, right at the end of every sentence, you know what you should be saying? You should be saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He fulfilled every bit of that in himself, in one sacrifice on the cross and through his resurrection, that in him we ought to enjoy the greater glory of the gospel because that glory surpasses it. It's like the new covenant that's described in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's way better, and we ought to enjoy this, the work of the spirit at work in our hearts and lives to draw us ever increasingly more like him. That's way better. Enjoy the glory of the gospel. The law condemns, but in the gospel, wrath is propitiated. That God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He has brought us from death to life. And in Christ, the guilty find pardon. Isn't that better? But not only do we see that in the sense of what is accomplished, but we ought to see even more in the sense of the permanence of it. Jesus didn't abolish the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. We're told in verse 11, For if what was being brought to an end came with, with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The law was our guardian until Christ. We're not meant to save ourselves, though so many do try. And yet it's never enough. Maybe you've lived that in your own history. Maybe you're living it now. 
If, if I can only just do one more good thing, then it'll balance it out. And near about as soon as you get that one good thing done, you realize, well, that couldn't possibly be enough because of these other things. And so you just go on and on. And one more try, and it's never enough. And you never get there, and you never overcome sin. And you never o- overcome the sin nature. And you can't undo what you've already done. And so you're just laboring and wandering in a maze of weariness, and you don't know what to do. Listen, in Christ, what was... What was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. In Christ there is permanent forgiveness and everlasting life in Him. Or to summarize it in the words of Jesus, it is finished. Much more will what is permanent have glory. We have to acknowledge And we readily acknowledge in all manner of ways that things that last are better. You buy shoes because you think the shoes are going to last because in lasting they're better. You want a car that's going to last because there's an expectation that it's better. You want building materials that are going to last because there's an expectation that they're better. You don't want to have to stand there at the register and buy a warranty for the thing that you're buying because you want to buy something that's better that doesn't require a warranty at the register. We acknowledge the things that last are better. Even acknowledging the permanence of marriage itself being better than dating for five minutes. Do we see the permanence of the glory of the gospel? He loves eternally. From eternity past into eternity future, he loves. It's like you can't help but think along the lines of Psalm 136 where you've just got a little phrase and his steadfast love endures forever. And then you got a phrase, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And just over and over and over again, verse after verse, you find this refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. But see, we ought to hear that refrain in our own lives. His steadfast love endures forever. The love of Jesus That God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love endures forever. So that when you find yourself and you just don't know what to do, his love endures forever. When you've lost that loved one and you're overcome with grief, his love endures forever. When the world is in absolute turmoil and you don't even know what to say, his love endures forever. When your life is slipping away and you're looking at your loved ones with tears in their eyes, his love endures forever. When family is a mess, your love endures. His love endures forever. When faith becomes sight and hope receives its final culmination, Love endures. 1 Corinthians 13. Do we see the permanence, the glory of the permanence of the gospel? As Jesus said in John chapter 10, when he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
The permanence of his peace, the permanence of his assurance, the permanence of his life, the permanence of his joy, that he outlasts every trouble and affliction, he endures through all disasters, he remains through all pursuits of trivial things. Enjoy the permanent cure to our diagnosis of resurrection hope that is permanent, forgiveness of sin that is permanent, pardon of our sin that is permanent. But how are you enjoying this? Can you say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The greater glory of the gospel. The greater glory that God did what we couldn't do. Do we have this kind of expectation in our lives? And are we enjoying it? And maybe you're here this morning and you've you've never come to Jesus Christ in faith. You've never trusted him as your Savior and Lord. And maybe you've never even seen the need. Why, Why should I bother with all of that? Listen to the testimony of the law. We don't even have, I mean, we could go with the summary of the law and the Ten Commandments, and we don't even have to make it very far before we recognize we're all condemned. Do you have no other gods before me? Have you ever worshipped anything else? Have you ever exalted the worth and value of anything else other than God himself? And you look around your life and be like, that's my life in a nutshell. Exalting everything other than him. Exalting the creation rather than the creator. Exalting your own ideas instead of God's design. Exalting all these things. And what we see is the law condemns in the sense that it's supposed to bring us to our knees. But when it brings us to our knees and we see the light in the sky, that with humble hearts we would say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And with grace and love, he reaches down into our lives and lists lifts us from the ash heap, and we have forgiveness and everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins. Let, listen to the testimony of the law, but don't stop there. Listen to the testimony of your need. Listen to the diagnosis of your need for Christ, that you would run to Christ for the remedy, who is the cure, who is our righteousness, who is our hope, who is our hope of the permanent forgiveness of sin and everlasting life in Him. Whatever else we do here today, let's enjoy Jesus together. And if you've never enjoyed him by faith before, make sure that today is the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You are so gracious. By your word, we are exposed in our sin. We recognize that without Christ, we loved the darkness rather than the light because our deeds were evil. Father, we pray that the light of Christ would shine and pierce the darkness in the lives of anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That there would be conviction of sin, but there would also be, by your Spirit, the conviction of righteousness in Christ 
that there is yet hope for all who cry out for mercy to Jesus. May you hear the cries of the penitent here today. And Father, for all of us in here who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, stir in our hearts a greater expectation of the glory of the gospel and a greater enjoyment of the hope that we have in Christ. In all things and in every way, may you be magnified as we respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.